Hello, and welcome to episode number 372 of the Armin Show podcast, Science, People, Creativity, Learning More, Expanding Your Knowledge. Subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever it might be as the show continues to grow. On this episode, we have the author of this book, Democratizing Finance, The Radical Promise of Fintech, which is financial technology shortened. The author is Dr. Marion Labour. Marion, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Hi, Armin. Many thanks for the lovely introduction. I'm very glad to discuss this uh, with you today. Very glad to have you on and with you doing many things at the same time. Some of the places that Marion can be found is she's a senior economist at Deutsche Bank in London and also at the same time lecturer at Harvard University with extensive private sector public policy and monetary policy experience, including at the European Commission, the IMF, the Luxembourg Central Bank, and Barclays. She's also gotten various awards and is a cryptocurrency mastermind, which is a cool description of sorts. So you are a senior economist at Deutsche Bank in London and lecturer at Harvard University. How are those both going and how did you get into the field of finance in the first place? Yeah, so to, to start from the very beginning, I completed my undergraduate degree in quantitative mathematics and econometrics at the University Paris-Dauphine and Master uh, in European Politics and International Relations at the London School of Economics, so, so in London. And after my time at the European Institute, uh, my professional journey started uh, at the Bureau of European Policy Advisor, which is uh, the, the, the office of the President of the European Commission. I then worked uh, as an economist at Barclays and then at the Central Bank of Luxembourg, and I was also a fellow researcher at uh, the International Monetary Fund. And, and actually, after uh, my PhD, I ended up lecturing in the economics department at Harvard. And, and while uh, working at Harvard was an unplanned way to follow my partner in the US, uh, it ended up actually being one of the most interesting years and, and a great platform to go. So I ended up uh, authoring some papers, uh, books, uh, I got some awards, uh, as you mentioned it. And, and there was one thing I was really missing uh, was probably like the fast paced collaborative and real world focus of, of investment banking. And that's why actually I'm now back uh, in London working at Deutsche Bank. And when I got my offer from, uh, from Deutsche Bank, actually Harvard offered me to keep uh, my position there. So I'm still teaching on a weekly basis, uh, so every Wednesday evening, London time, uh, online, and I'm going uh, to Harvard every summer uh, in July to teach in person. So I'm taking one month. That's cool. It's nice to be able to do multiple things at once with technology that we didn't have a long time ago and still provide your value. It's nice as you mentioned, because on one side, uh, I keep my academic position, so it allows me to have like uh, this academic great colleague with whom I can talk about like future trends, uh, all, all the structural trends that we are seeing, long-term things and so on. And at the same time, uh, I managed to combine it with, uh, with a position in investment banking and we are analyzing like all uh, the market, what is going on, but it's much more uh, focused on what is happening uh, in the news these days rather than a super long-term or super uh, backward in terms of history. Now, you mentioned long-term there. One thing before I ask about that, would you say you have to do long-term thinking in all that you do, or do you include any short-term, or is it mostly long-term, working at a bank or thinking about finances? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And, and I think my personal view on that uh, is that you have several ways to, to look at what is happening in the news. 
So you can cover like what is happening right now uh, in terms of the, the specific news, or you can take a look at uh, a longer term uh, lifetime. And I think it's much more interesting uh, to look at what happened uh, in history and, and what is about to happen and to look at policies, what is in place, place uh, government infrastructures, investment to better understand where we are. So I try to have like a big picture approach uh, to, to look at history but to look at what is happening these days as well and what is happening and what is about uh, to happen in terms of the next uh, 10 years as well. As an investment banker, what is an average Thursday morning? What are some pieces of investment banking that happen? Yeah, the, the good thing is like, uh, it's, um, I mean, you, you need uh, to publish papers much more frequently than what you would do uh, in academia, given that, again, we are covering like a shorter term, um, shorter term news river than in academia, you have to look at a very structural model, theoretical model, where, where, where you have like a lot of mathematics. Uh, so that that's very different. I mean, in terms of uh, not time to publish a paper in academia. It took me like four years to publish a book, uh, while uh, at Deutsche Bank it takes me like uh, between one day and, and one week uh, to, to work on a paper. So the, the timing is, is very, very different. And uh, what, what, to ask, what you have asked basically when you are in investment banking is to be able to interpret the news. Uh, to, to have a view on that, uh, to really interpret, to, to see how it's going to impact uh, the future. What you are asking in academia is to look at a niche topic uh, that, has not, that hasn't been uh, looked uh, at it before and to discover something which is new. I reminds me one time somebody gave me a visual of all the knowledge in the world is like a circle. And then when somebody does bits of research in their categories, like the circle has a little edge that pops out and it expands a little bit. And then there's somebody else in some field, and anthropology, and then physics, and then and it expands the. But but that, absolutely, I mean, and, and the main difference as well is in terms of the coverage. For example, when you work, when you are an academic, uh, you're looking at a specific niche topic. While when you are like in banking and research, uh, investment bank, basically you're looking at you. You have a broader coverage. It's still a niche, but it's much much broader than uh, what you are looking uh, in terms of topic when you are an academic. And in terms of the time it takes, I mean, yeah, again, just to publish a book, uh, it took me like four years because first uh, you have to write a proposal, then the proposal needs to be approved by the board. Um, and then uh, you have like a lot of back and forth ping pong with your editor in terms of the structure. Then you, you start writing the chapters. Your editors uh, need time as well to comment all the chapters uh, to edit them. When uh, you and your editor are happy with the book, uh, when you publish for an academic press like Harvard University Press, uh, the press I have published this book, uh, we have what we call a peer review process. So basically the book uh, is sent to a couple of people which are, who are experts uh, in the field. So they need uh, time as well to comment uh, the book. They have, uh, they have comments as well that you need to incorporate. Uh, so you need that. And when the book is back, uh, you need time. It takes time actually to look at all the comments, to incorporate all the comments. You need again uh, to update the book, to update the data, the numbers, given that actually times, uh, time, time flies uh, along the different steps. And when the book is back uh, and you're done with your edit, uh, sometimes it's, it goes back again uh, to the reviewer uh, to make sure they are happy uh, the way you have reviewed the book, you have edited the book. And then when everyone is happy, uh, the book 
needs to go uh, through the board again for approval. And when the, when the, the board is approving the, 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 the book, uh, he's happy with the book, it takes uh, at least like a year again, basically to edit the book, uh, to update the book with the most recent data tables, charts, uh, to, to do some uh, copyright, to have, to have the shorts and so on, to choose the, to pick up uh, the cover, to choose a cover, um, and, and to look at how you, you're going to communicate uh, in terms of marketing uh, when the book is published. So even when you have finished the book and when you're publishing the book, uh, you, you have a year still. Right. There's still that lag time. Yeah, absolutely. There's a delayed gratification to it in a way, which is nice. Sometimes it's good when things are delayed a little bit, then we can... I think part of human uh, joy comes from anticipatory joy versus just joy. Something that's coming on the way. I once saw like a dopamine spike, it's up, up there. You feel it even more before it's happening, knowing that it's going to happen more so than when it actually shows up. Because that's very brief and instantaneous, but the other one is longer and builds purpose and fulfillment in our being in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but when it's published, you're very happy. <laughs> right. That's true. At that point, everybody, it's, look it's what so I have good. done. Yeah. That's true. There's something nice about it. And it's a real statement. I've always thought about it. With a book, that's a book. And so years down the line, it's like, look, this is a physical, tangible item of thought put out into the world. It's part of the knowledge base. It's something great. You might see it at a place. It, it, there's something interesting about that to me. So I always like books. That's cool. And then also, by the way, you have a co-author. I should ask that. Your co-author, how did you team up? And how have you known them? What led to that pairing between you two? Yeah, I met him a couple of years ago. And uh, and the thing is, he used to work at McKinsey, was covering the financial services uh, sector at McKinsey. So he could bring like a lot of uh, case study, uh, given that he has worked in the industry. And it was like a nice... Uh, nice experience because in addition to being a good friend, uh, he has also like a deep knowledge in terms of how banks are, are working, how fintech, um, is, is, how does that work in terms of firms, given that he did like a lot of mission in the fintech space uh, previously. So we ended uh, having this idea together uh, to publish a book uh, and the fact that I could, uh, I could bring this uh, academic uh, view, he could bring like this expertise, use case view. Uh, we thought that it which could be a great mix uh, to basically collaborate on a book together. That's cool. I think some of the best things in life are collaborations or like two brothers or two sisters or a couple of really strong friends or some colleagues. The best things come from collaboration. It's hard to do as much just as a single entity floating through the planet, if you will. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and actually, probably like one thing that, uh, that we notice in academia, I would say, is like you tend to write with... Uh, with good friends uh, and colleagues who are like after so many years very good friends and, and you it, it's very nice because you get to know how they work so you know uh, what they are good at uh, they know what you are bad at so basically you can you can you can enjoy um, the good part and the bad part which is basically not easy uh, to write together but on the other hand it's also nice when you know the weakness and the strength of the other person you can make sure that the book is, is well balanced and uh, everyone is um, is bringing some value to the book another point now speaking of the book this wonderful duo collaboration you cover 
democratizing of finance. And so the first question that comes to mind is, what is the benefit of that? What problem do we have today, or what problems do we have today that would cause an interest in democratizing finance? Yeah, I, I think we are living uh, in a macroeconomic environment, which is, uh, which is not easy. Um, I mean, especially for millennials, uh, I think maybe now it's slightly better, but actually until last year, uh, we had this kind of COVID effect uh, with a lack of opportunity in terms of job, uh, a lack of opportunity in terms of investment, uh, the housing market, which is uh, extremely uh, expensive, so not really affordable. Uh, it's much more difficult to get richer, uh, to, to be like uh, the owner of his own flat housing uh, these days rather than 50 years ago. Uh, and what we notice is that the return on capital is, is higher, tend to be higher than wage. Uh, it's what Thomas Piketty mentioned. And uh, millennials uh, are actually much more uh, stressed uh, financially than what they were, uh, that they were previously. Uh, and in terms of, of fintech innovation, uh, we have seen actually a, a lot of innovation, especially uh, during crises. And for example, if I took like the 2007-2008 uh, financial crisis that we, we are mentioning in the book, uh, it's basically where uh, blockchain, uh, distributed ledger technology, DLT, uh, emerge. Uh, it's where crypto actually uh, also emerged. Bitcoin uh, was invented actually uh, following the, the financial crisis. And, uh, and it, again, it's, it's when you have like big crises uh, that you have this kind of turning point uh, moment. And, and for COVID, it's very hard to say what is going to happen after COVID, but what we have seen is like the explosion of e-commerce, the explosion of telework, um, artificial intelligence uh, really uh, took off as well. Uh, there was a boost in terms of automation and uh, and in terms of the next innovation uh, again we are like uh, we will only uh, realize what the next big innovation are in, in few years but I, I would be surprised if nothing emerged from, from from the covid pandemic pandemics or changes in life cause everybody to be shaken up and then suddenly there's a shift because necessity or opportunity seeking from business individuals that's a good feature one of the groups that has been impacted is millennial people who are the younger group, mid, mid young group demographic, and they have been, we could say hard hit in some forms. What are some items they are dealing with currently in banking that can be improved upon? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, again, what, what, what we can look at is uh, it's on returns. Uh, so the middle class uh, witnessed a declining share of national income, and it was true actually even like uh, on, the, on the long term since the 1970s. And, uh, and, and actually they, they are chasing returns. Uh, they are seeking higher yields in more risky markets, and it's what actually appeared uh, during the COVID pandemic. Uh, second trend that we are seeing is the trend on ESG. Uh, which has been uh, actually much, much higher, and it's, it, it, it's increasingly higher these days. Uh, we have a younger uh, generation, which is likely to be more conscious uh, of greenwashing atoms as well. Uh, in terms of the trends that we are seeing is buy now, pay later market is also booming uh, in the younger age uh, groups. Um, and we have like a third of uh, the 18, 34 years old, uh, which have used actually this uh, buy now, pay later so the, but the market is still uh, largely unregulated. 
And, and the overtrend that actually we have seen, uh, especially during the, the pandemic, uh, is the fact that millennials and uh, Generation Z uh, are using social media uh, much more than, than, than ever, but also to guide uh, banking decisions. So, so they, they are using yeah, quite a lot a smartphone for payment, smartphone actually for, for, for consumer to consumer uh, payments than, than what we, we that our previous generation were doing. When you think of the groups, do you think of each, the youngest group, the millennials, older, older into like demographics, do you think of this group has more wealth, this group is struggling, this group has more wealth? Is that a thought process that goes on? So, so actually what we are seeing in, in terms of academic studies, so it's, it's, it's not what I think, it's what actually academic studies are, are showing. Uh, it's like basically if you look at the generation of uh, 60 years old plus, basically they, they were born in a context where uh, GDP economic growth uh, was high, inflation was high, uh, it was easier uh, to buy a house, a flat, it was much, much more accessible. And, and these days, uh, it's very different than what uh, it used to be. I mean, these days, it's much more difficult to find a job. Uh, inflation um, is, is very high, but let's see how long it's going to last. So it's, it's like a new phenomenon. Uh, economic growth uh, is, is, is not that high. Uh, if you, I mean, if, if, if you don't think about the rebound of the, of the COVID pandemic, which was basically structurally uh, inflated, but in general, it's much, uh, it's much lower than what it was before. Hmm. And, and in terms Fair of point. opportunities, uh, opportunities are, are probably like lower than what uh, it was before. Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, jobs, uh, it was much more easier uh, to find a job 15, 50 years ago rather than uh, than now. But Fair again, point. this is for this is for advanced economies, and what we are seeing uh, to be a bit more positive uh, on the emerging economy side. Is, um, is a rebalancing in terms of uh, inequality. And emerging countries uh, tend to get like richer and richer. And uh, economic growth has, uh, is still uh, highly sustainable in, in, in these countries. And we are seeing a rebalancing in terms of inequality. So in advanced economies, uh, inequalities are, are, have been uh, in, in, on the verge of uh, increasing over the past few, few, few years. While uh, if you look at the rebalancing between emerging countries and advanced economies, actually, uh, countries are much, uh, much more equal than what they were a few years ago. And the middle class uh, has, has boomed, uh, especially in China. Hmm. I always think about inequality because I can almost feel it. And anytime inequality in different regions goes too far, the humanity level has to drop because this is not like... Uh, good for personal connection between others when you know that somebody's one hour is worth somebody's one year is just unnerving a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's what we call basically within countries inequality have been growing, but between uh, countries uh, inequality has been uh, has ha has been declining. So, so to be positive, we, we shouldn't forget that basically this is probably like in terms of improvement, worldwide improvement, uh, this is extremely beneficial what happened over the last uh, few years. If you look at specific countries, uh, and I'm thinking especially uh, Europe, US, uh, inequality has uh, increased in, in these specific countries, within the countries, but across, between uh, countries, inequality has uh, definitely decreased over time. There's been like a global leveling force 
across uh, absolutely so so we are seeing this yeah absolutely yeah that's not bad seems more healthy in some way in the bigger picture so that's good Agree. <laughs> <laughs> this may be good what could be some of the pieces in the next five ten years that are revolutionary that maybe already are starting right now but what might be some elements that eight years from now we were building right now yeah there are a couple of things actually that that we can mention the first thing uh, that uh, that clearly came to my mind it's um it's 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 payment again right what we mainly covered in the book uh, it's the rise of central bank digital currencies and uh, two years ago, I think most of us didn't have uh, heard about central bank digital currency. But these days, it's uh, it's no longer the case. Most of us have heard about CBDC. And the question is no longer if uh, we are going to have a CBDC, uh, but when and, and how. And just to give you some numbers today, around 90% of central banks are developing a CBDC. Uh, around 60% are experimenting at the proof of concept stage. And according to the Bank of International Settlements, central banks representing about uh, a fifth of the world's population are likely to issue a general purpose CBDC within the next uh, two years. So again, uh, this is something uh, which is uh, much, much bigger than what uh, many people uh, don't realize. And if we look specifically at uh, emerging uh, economies, uh, they, they are actually uh, very well advanced in terms of payment, fintech, uh, innovation, and, and they are probably likely to, to move uh, quicker. Uh, with, I mean, probably like as well a higher adoption than, than most uh, advanced economies. And if you look at uh, what is happening today, we have actually several countries uh, who have a live CBDC. I'm thinking of the Bahamas, uh, the Eastern Caribbean, Nigeria, uh, Jamaica. So they all have a central bank digital currency. China uh, has also been working on a CBDC since uh, 2014. So it was the first actually uh, country looking at uh, a CBDC. And they started piloting the digital yuan uh, from 2020. And actually they made it uh, accessible to foreigners uh, earlier this year. So, so given that we, we have, I mean, China, which is like a huge country uh, with uh, over 1 billion people, uh, I have noted that even more countries uh, will be able to launch uh, their CBDC in the next uh, few quarters or, or, or years. What would you say is one large advantage of having a central bank digital currency as opposed to the default? So, sorry, I did get... What is one advantage of having a CBDC as opposed to the default? Why have the central bank have a currency? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. Actually, you have like a s several reasons. And uh, I, I think it's, it, it's, it's good as well to not uh, mix everything. It's like cryptocurrency. I mean, people tend to mix all the CBDC in the same basket. Uh, they are all very different. Uh, some CBDC, some central bank digital currency are relying on specific technology like the blockchain technologies, but it's not the case for all of them. Uh, some CBDC are only accessible to the national population, while others are also accessible to foreigners. Uh, and, and you have like a couple of uh, differences, uh, technical differences uh, across all countries in, in uh, how they are shaping, building their CBDC. If I take the look, if I take for example China, uh, the main reason for launching their CBDC, uh, they, 
I, I would say there were like probably two. Uh, the first one is um, to to uh, to in some way replace uh, cash because cash uh, is the, uh, well used uh, in terms of payment in China, and cash is also used for, for illicit transactions. So you cannot trace transactions. Uh, you have like some illicit transaction. Uh, sometimes it's paid also for tax evasion. So having like a digital uh, cash, digital currency uh, would uh, would actually solve uh, partially this uh, this cash issue, and people would rely much more on the CBDC rather than uh, on physical cash. So physical cash was the first reason. The second reason uh, was financial inclusion. Uh, we have like over 1.7 billion people who are financially excluded uh, these days in the world. So that's absolutely huge. Uh, and a certain number uh, actually are based uh, in China. And what the government was willing to do uh, is to help uh, fan, I mean, it was to help unbanked people uh, to, to, to have access uh, to, to, to money and cash. And the way it's going to work and the way actually it's going to work and uh, it, it's still in pilot, so it's not yet officially launched in China, in China. So there are still back and forth in terms of how, how, how it's um, the, the, the final step. But basically, you don't need to have a bank account. So you have a smartphone and you can pay uh, from your smartphone without necessarily uh, to have your CBDC account linked to a bank account. So even when you don't have a bank account, you can have uh, your digital wallet on, on your smartphone as well. Very similar uh, to cash. I will mm. give you uh, a physical uh, banknote, or I can send you like a, a digital uh, SMS, or uh, I can send you like a QR code, or I can send you a PDF. Uh, it's very similar in terms of how to interpret it. That's a great system. I am sending some money right now through CBD. Absolutely. <laughs> you can send me a QR code, a text, a PDF, and I will get it. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's how you can see it. But again, so that, that's the main motivation for China. So to look uh, to improve financial inclusion, uh, to decrease uh, the use of cash. But if you look at uh, countries uh, such as the US and Europe, it's, it's very different. I mean, I would say the, the main motivation behind is probably like uh, to modernize to modernize uh, payment, uh, and the second reason is probably as well uh, because they feel the competition with other digital currency. So it's it's one way uh, to increase the use of digital currency, but to have a public uh, digital currencies. But in terms of adoption, yeah, my my, my main concern is probably like uh, on, on the adoption rate, because in the US, in Europe, we are used to pay with. Uh, our physical card, uh, it's very convenient I and mean, we just need to type, we have the contactless technology, uh, we are all relying on, 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 yeah, on the plastic card, on the physical card, and it's uh, much easier actually to uh, move uh, to a mean of payment which is more convenient. And I'm not sure that paying via a smartphone is much more convenient than uh, paying uh, with the contactless technology with the card. Right. They're both kind of similar right now. And, and we are used to it actually as well. So when you are used to pay in a certain way, it takes time actually in terms of habits uh, to move to a different habit. Actually, I have to throw that in there. Slow adoption, many different categories. Uh, what we do as people, it starts, but it takes like 14 years before that thing from 14 years ago is picked up. Do you, what are your thoughts on slow adoption? 
do you always take into account in every category? Is there anything you can speed up? Is that ever possible? Or do people always go at a certain rate and you can't really do anything about it? Yeah, that's a good question. So what we are saying in terms of in terms of studies, if you look at all the innovations, uh, we, we tend basically to uh, undermine uh, innovation on the long term, but to overthink uh, in terms of uh, short term adoption. So, so we all think that in the next two years, something big is going to happen. But actually, it takes much longer for innovation to really take off. Uh, but we all undermine what could actually happen o over the next 10 years. And, and we are seeing that for, for I mean, for, for most most of the innovations. Um, if you if you had told me like in 1990 that actually everyone will use uh, their iPhone or their smartphone um, five hours per day, I'm not sure I would have believed it. <laughs> really? Five hours a day? You're going to be on five hours a day? Yes, yes, I will. Maybe eight. Some people will be on for 10. But in terms of innovation, Armen, actually, I think the main point uh, regarding innovation is basically, I think what you look when you look at all the, the main innovation that happened, like the smartphone, the laptop, and, um, and all this kind of innovation, digital innovation especially, um, people love uh, convenience. Uh, and I think uh, we all care about convenience uh, among all. Uh, and it's a good way to look at what, what is going to happen. Because, for example, when, when you ask people if they care about their privacy, everyone cares about the privacy. But I think we care uh, even more about convenience. Um, most of us have a smartphone. Uh, most of us, uh, uh, we are receiving our emails on our smartphone. Um, some of us are paying their smartphone. Uh, some of us are writing all our text message, all our calls, your smartphone, and everything is recorded at the end. But again, that's so convenient that we care more about convenience than we care about anonymity. That's a great point. There might be some individuals that would say, I really care about this, but their actions say this. And you have to look at actions because on the business end, everything is based on actions and not intent behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's why actually, if you ask people, uh, what do they care of? I think the answer is much more different than if you look at, okay, what, what are people doing exactly? <laughs> they don't match. And convenience match. is always uh, is always king and, uh, and the big winner in all the case, which, which is not always good. I mean, I'm not saying it's good, but I'm just saying that it, it's what, what you notice in terms of innovation to answer your question. Uh, and the second, uh, and so first, my first point was about convenience and the second point in terms of um, innovation, I think it's pretty uh, important as well to look at what the government is pushing and what are the main innovations and how how uh, is it uh, is it done by government. So we have governments in the world uh, which are financing uh, R&D in, in specific industry much more than others, uh, pushing innovation, pushing adoption, uh, sponsoring infrastructures much more than uh, in, in other countries. So it, it, it's quite important to look at what uh, government is, is pushing to understand what are the main uh, innovations to come. That's true. Sometimes you look at their plans or the subsidies and then suddenly that becomes the popular thing 10 years later. But why was it that it's just because they said we will pay for some percentage of this and now corn is popular in the United States or yeah. let's say electric vehicles or some category. Absolutely, and, and for example, when you, when we when we were talking about like uh, the next innovation, 
um, I, I think it, it, it's clearly uh, illustrated if you look at China. I mean, you can say uh, that basically the, the Chinese government is heavily invested in artificial intelligence. Uh, if we look at the US, uh, I mean, a few years ago, the government were, was uh, highly investing in, in the chips, uh, semiconductor industry. And you can look at uh, what are the long-term plan, what are the long-term investment to better understand what, where uh, the next innovation will be generating. It's a powerful point. It's almost like a guiding force that the government brings to that. And then it seems like individuals were creating in that category, but actually there was a huge push toward that. And then somebody's like, okay, I will go ahead and do it. So yeah, it's yeah. A of in economic development, what kinds of items can lead to more inequality or also potentially reduce inequality? What can be done in the uh, economic space to increase or reduce inequality? Yeah, I, I would mention four points here. Uh, first, of, first of all, I, uh, I think we need uh, to narrow the technology literacy gap uh, that we have, and especially for the unbanked uh, population. Uh, in the developed world, the higher income from capital relative to labor driving I mean, its inequality, and, and we have high barriers uh, to entry in tech uh, due to rapid pace of technological development. Uh, and we can see that there is a, a very strong correlation between uh, underbanked uh, people and, and poverty in the developing market. And if you look specifically at financial literacy, um, it's pretty low. Even in OECD countries, uh, only half of the population, half of the consumers, uh, adults are able to, to, to answer like simple uh, interest-based questions. So yeah, first point, uh, we should increase uh, the financial literacy gap and we should increase as well the technology literacy gap. Uh, my, my second point is about probably like bilateral trade agreement. Uh, we have uh, trade blocks uh, which entrench economic growth and wealth uh, between nations party to the agreement due to high trade barriers uh, and preferential treatment of domestic firms. And, and at the same time, uh, the, benefits, the benefits of liberalizing trade is not spread uh, equally within a country. And uh, there are sunset industries uh, which are shielded from external competition and will be forced uh, to consolidate, to, to consolidate uh, generating like greater inequality. Uh, the, the third thing uh, in terms of inequality actually that, that we need to be very careful, and we have seen that uh, during the, the COVID the pandemic uh, recently, it's the rise of uh, the number of freelancers and, and the gig economy. So it creates uh, economic and financial insecurity. Uh, gig workers, uh, most of them, uh, they have a uh, short-term uh, contract, uh, they have fewer resources provided by the firm. Uh, there is a lack of bargaining power as well uh, with employers. Uh, as we have seen, many gig workers are earning less than uh, the minimum wage uh, as well. And uh, they, are, they, they miss actually like uh, many benefits that, uh, that other workers have. Uh, and the fourth thing, uh, the, my fourth point that I would mention uh, to your question, is the fact that uh, few people don't have access to investment funds, uh, loan money, trade finance, uh, and this is true for individuals, but this is uh, also true for, for SMEs, uh, small, medium enterprises. 
uh, through the traditional banking system and uh, and then it's uh, exacerbated uh, again by the fact that regulation sometimes is complex and uh, the fact that financial literacy is low. You don't think about financial literacy as much as, I think it's coming, the last 10 years it's being discussed way more that, oh, this is not in schools or people should be learning about uh, investing or how to manage their finances in a better way. And it is, going around here, but you're right, in the unbanked population you're describing, they would benefit a lot from understanding how money works and how to make things work for them in the long term, or little bits of savings, building up their... But that, my, point was, uh, my point was, I mean, for the worldwide population, I mean, this is true, uh, and again, this is, uh, this is like really striking uh, for emerging countries, but this is also true like uh, for, for advanced economies, uh, citizen, uh, I, I think we should uh, teach uh, at, at school more financial. Uh, we should have a better financial education. I mean, for example, if I take my personal case, uh, I studied uh, mathematics in school. Uh, I have never been taught. Uh, I have never been financially educated uh, at school uh, before. Uh, before 18 years old, while I was. Uh, I mean, I, I was learning tons of mathematics, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> but right. the basic concept of uh, how to take a mortgage, what do we mean by interest rates, uh, how to compound interest rates and all these things, uh, it's, it's not part of the curriculum, uh, at least uh, in France, but, uh, but in, in many other countries as well. Little bits of knowledge can make a difference for years and years in any category, I always value gaining knowledge in various disciplines because uh, getting 100% of the knowledge, great, but getting 10% is highly valuable. Obviously it diminishes as you go more advanced, but get those base elements, the average person walking around without the base elements is almost like crippled for a decade, two decades, three decades, no good. Yeah. And actually if you look at long-term investment, uh, if you are like purely rational, everyone should invest in equity because if you look at Long-term investment, and, uh, and actually I, I have this nice chart uh, in, in the book, uh, but looking at, I think we, we took like 70 years of investment, if you find the page, uh, comparing actually uh, equities versus uh, treasury bond, and you can see that the difference is, is just striking between the two. So if you, if you, if you are purely rational, uh, you, you, you should actually invest in, uh, in equity rather than bonds. I just want to showcase. There's just charts. I'll just showcase that there's charts in the book. <laughs> again, this That's is right. a long-term study, so you have like a lot of fluctuations in the short term, especially these days. But uh, but yeah, if you look at the long-term uh, impact uh, between investing in uh, equities versus uh, in bonds, you can clearly see the, the difference. I want to add that in. The back. I always look at details of books. So I want to mention to individuals that one, there are good subsections good imagery in the book and also in the back section we have uh, charts that show percentages people that agree don't agree with different financial questionings people who prefer cash and different payment methods there's a lot of data near the end of the book which is before the what do you call the notes which I always look at now first when I'm reading a book because I like to see the sources of everything that the book came from and it gives me an idea of what the book is about before I start reading, highly recommend to individuals when you read a book, look at the notes 
first. If you're in the category, if you don't know the category, then, but if you're in, kind of in the category, then maybe you'll recognize an author, or maybe you'll recognize a book or a philosopher or some of those mentioned. And already now it's like you're connected with the book more than if you just started from scratch. Random pointer there. Yes. So that's a cool feature. Now, this one I had to throw in because one time I spoke with Yancey Strickler, who co founded Kickstarter, and uh, in the book you had mentioned. Um, access to crowdfunding or ways that people can get funding for their effort. How does that change as we democratize finance? What are better methods now for that? Yeah, so, so, so we have more than 50% of crowdfunding campaigns, uh, which manage actually to, to achieve their goal. So it, it's pretty high, uh, half of them. And in, in terms of the main types of crowdfunding, uh, I would say there are like probably five. Um, Donation-based crowdfunding, uh, we have equity crowdfunding, we have membership platform, peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending, profit-sharing crowdfunding. So all of them have, have different features, but yeah, there, there is quite a lot of crowdfunding in, if you want to achieve your, your objective in it. In those populations where people don't have access to much, is that a method to start a business or something to get little bits from many people, or is that not really a way yet for those populations? Uh, again, I, I think, so in the world we have like 1.7 billion uh, inhabitants who don't have access to, to a bank account, so that's pretty much. And uh, basically what does it mean? It means that they cannot save, they cannot invest, um, which, which is the primary uh, Thing because you, 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 if, if you have like a disaster happening, you are far more of a disaster happening. Uh, it's nice to have some saving. Uh, it's nice to be able to invest. It's nice to have an insurance, uh, and it's key uh, actually to be able to have a bank account. Uh, so these people who don't have a bank account are, are relying basically on physical banknotes, and that's why um, we. I mean, I would be surprised if. Uh, Cash, physical cash, is not staying uh, there for for the for the for, for quite long uh, these days. But uh, countries are also looking at uh, alternative to digitalized cash, uh, because actually what uh, what what we notice according to the stat uh, from the World Bank is like half of the population, which is unbanked, uh, more than half actually, they have they, they have a smartphone, they have access to internet, they have a smartphone. So that's why having some some app uh, where people can access to the app uh, via a smartphone could potentially help uh, with financial inclusion. Makes sense. Now I have two other brief questions here in relation to digital currency and governments using digitized currencies. One is what features would consumers look for to use a digital currency? What are some good features? That they might think, okay, this is the one I will go with. Yeah. So uh, again, I think um, convenience is all, all, always key. I mean, it's, it's exactly what uh, what we talked about uh, earlier. And the main feature is, yeah, it's definitely convenience. It's how I see it. If it's not convenient, if it's much, if it's less convenient than actually the the, the the way we are paying these days, I, I'm not sure that the the adoption rate will, will be like quick. And, and very high. And actually, what we have seen, uh, if you look at China specifically, um, they, they, they almost moved from cash uh, to digital payment. So they, they, are, they, they have kind of skipped 
the plastic card. And given that uh, paying uh, digitally is much more convenient uh, than paying via cash, the transition has been uh, pretty quick uh, and, and it was, uh, in terms of adoption, pretty high uh, as well. In uh, advanced economies, it's very different because we are used uh, to pay uh, with the plastic card. It's, it's very convenient uh, to pay with this contactless uh, way. Uh, and again, we, we are used to it. I mean, for us, it's, it's easy. And I don't think it's more convenient to pay with a smartphone rather than uh, paying with, uh, with a plastic card. That's true. Sometimes it can become sort of slow. It's like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Yep, 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 I like that you point that out, by the way, that sometimes it skips and it's nice to have, they didn't need to, there was a technology, then the next one, then this country that was way behind can skip this part, has no base that's like messed up or muddled at this point, starts from scratch with the new technology, now they're crisp moving into the next decade, so that's kind of cool. Uh, and actually, sometimes it's easier to start from scratch than to have a legacy. I mean, if you look at uh, China, they are very well advanced in terms of payment, uh, in terms of payment app as well, WeChat, uh, Alipay. Um, I mean, they are very well advanced in terms of technology, yeah, payment technology. Uh, if you look at uh, African countries, I'm thinking, for example, to M-Pesa. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very well advanced. Uh, India, uh, with Adar, it's, it's very stunning what they managed to do, like to enroll over 1 billion of the population. Uh, to digitalize ID as, as they did, that, that's, uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. Or Grumman Fund as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we are seeing like a lot of uh, fintech applications, uh, very successful uh, fintech uh, in, in emerging countries. Starting from scratch is a big deal. I think about it like with ideas, when you have ideas from a base of scratch, then you go off, but then when there's like a muddled platform and you have to build on it, okay, this, but forget about this, I have to remove this, too much effort, we're not really built for that kind of uh, fixing and then starting again. Yeah, no, sometimes now, it's easier actually to skip, uh, to, to skip and, and to leapfrog uh, in order to, 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 to have a successful technology and innovation. Right. I, I agree. It's a great, I always think about things in terms of people and what they, just their general mind and what must be done, and it's the same process. Scratch is always, that's why people meditate, so they can start from scratch again and then, oh, <laughs> <a> nice face. <laughs> I have no thoughts. Okay, now I can start from thoughts and build them and make like a nice space. My last question for you is, uh, do governments become larger, smaller, or do they change as finance is digitized? What happens to the average government? Yeah, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, I don't think when you say finance is digitized, I, I, I don't think there, there will be a lot of change in terms of government, uh, but it depends what you mean by government. If you mean government, government and central banks are only government. I mean, again, if we look at central banks, they, they, they are thinking in the process or they have already, uh, for, for those countries who have already launched their digital currency, uh, they have actually digitalized their, their currency, but things are, are not changing that that much, uh, I, I would say, because, I mean, basically the way it works, consumer for physical cash, they have uh, their bank account at the commercial bank, and the commercial bank is basically using with the central bank. With the CBDC, central bank digital currency, uh, the consumer has directly the bank account at the central bank, but all the relationships are going to stay uh, intermediated by the commercial bank. 
So it, it's not going to change that much, and I don't even think that the consumer will really realize that, that it's much more digitalized than, than, than before. And in terms of government transformation, I, I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of things are in the process of being digitalized. Um, I mean, if you look at tax filling, uh, tax filling, uh, tax benefits, and, uh, and and a lot of transfers and so on, uh, it, it's much more digitalized, and and it's in the process of being yeah, mostly digitalized in the next in the next coming coming years, definitely. But I don't think there will be a big impact. Uh, in terms of how large or small the government is going to be. It's more like a trend. Uh, but again, I think we tend to to, to underestimate, overestimate uh, innovation in the short term, long term. But I also think that when, when we look at innovation, digitalization, uh, we think that when everything will be digitalized, uh, nothing will be done manually, which is, uh, which is, which is not correct. Uh, if you look at, for example, the, 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 the historical innovation, I mean, computers, many people have said basically with the computers, uh, many jobs will become uh, obsolete. And actually a lot of jobs as well as have, have been created. I mean, you need to repair computers, uh, you need to make computers. Uh, I mean, we have like more and more apps on the computers, so it creates like a lot of jobs as well. And, uh, and I don't think uh, it's going basically to, to, to disrupt uh, jobs, to remove jobs, but I think it will create different kind of jobs. Hmm. And if you look at the unemployment rate, especially in the US, I mean, it's, it's like basically full employment. That's true. The point you brought up about the consumers not seeing it makes me think of even like phones where technology going on behind the scenes to become a smaller processor or change the screens but at the end result you see the, the next year's model looks almost the same a lot of stuff went on behind the scenes but that's not for the consumer to deal with directly yeah and, and we don't realize uh, as, as consumers because actually we don't we don't see it it's behind the scene but uh, but a lot of things are going to change and, and yes uh, there was a very nice study for from mckinsey where I think they estimated that over like a third of jobs uh, in the next uh, decade actually will, will be different than, than, than today. Dr. Marianne Labour, where can people find your work and or material? Where can it be located? Um, so, I mean, you can find, find the book uh, on, on Amazon, definitely. And please uh, feel free to stay in touch uh, on LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm publishing what, uh, what, uh, what I'm working on. Um, and I have a website where you can find all my academic papers. This is very cool. I would like to thank you for having joined on this discussion, brought us a bit about finance, democratizing of it, and also uh, giving us some information about payments, what people will be doing, the unbanked population, and CBDCs and more. Thank you. And we are out.